Hello team and welcome to episode 427 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Brooke Seam. Brooke is a writer, chef and speaker whose work on antidepressant withdrawal has appeared in the Washington Post, New York Post, Psychology Today and much, much more. Her memoir, May Cause Side Effects, is the first book on antidepressant withdrawal to hit the mass market and has some incredibly powerful insights that we discussed today. It's likely that if you're listening to this episode, you've either been on or know someone who's been on antidepressants. These medications for many are seen as a life sentence and many of us have no idea what comes after if we ever choose to come off of them. This conversation with Brooke, who's gone through exactly that experience, was truly an eye-opening one. In this episode, you can expect to learn the dramatic difference between what Brooke's life looked like on antidepressants versus off of them, why antidepressants might not be the answer and may be causing you more harm than good, along with what seems to be the best technique to coming off antidepressants if you're ready to go down that path. So without further ado, Brooke Seam. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well. Thank you so much for asking. I'm very excited to go into our topic of discussion today. As I was just saying to you, it's not a topic that we've had the opportunity to dive deep on yet. And I think it's going to be a really insightful one, something that we can raise a lot of awareness around. But before we do go into that, can you explain to listeners who you are and what it is that you do? Yes. So my name is Brooke Seam and I, <laughs> I have two lives. <laughs> I am probably most known. I am a professional chef. I competed on the television show Chopped in the US, which people love. And that's still you know, a big part of my life working, working uh, in food. And then I also have this world, this life in the realm of psychiatric drug withdrawal, uh, which is totally different. I've written yeah, a book. Apart, called, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've written a book called uh, May Cause Side Effects. It came out last year. And it's about, it's the first memoir on antidepressant withdrawal to have been bought by a traditional publisher and with the goal of marketing it towards, you know, the mass, the mass audience. Um, And it's effectively about a topic that affects millions of people all around the world. And yet somehow it's not something that is discussed very often and very few people actually have real awareness of it. And it's basically the story of what happened for me when I was 15, I was put on a cocktail of psychiatric drugs after my father suddenly passed away. And then 15 years later, a variety of things conspired and it was time for me to get off of these drugs. I was pulled off too quickly and in a reckless way and I was plunged into severe, severe antidepressant withdrawal. And the book is about that experience. And my work is about how people can better recognize antidepressant withdrawal and both patients, prescribers, family members, how it can be avoided or at least mitigated, how we can distinguish it from relapse and how we can basically reframe the narrative around depression and anxiety that at this point has become chronic. We tell people that this is something they have to cope with for the rest of their life. And quite frankly, I think that's crap. I used to believe that. Now I don't. And my work so my work is around all that yeah i love it and i think the best people to come and talk about these things are people who have gone through it and not only are you going to give us a bunch of information and you know a recollection of your story today but i think you're going to give a lot of people hope right and sometimes all we need yeah. is a 
example of someone who's done the thing that we didn't think was possible before. And then all of a sudden it's like, ah, oh, wait a minute, well, maybe I can do that as well. So I hope that that's what inspires a lot of people. So take me back to that moment in your early teenage years, I guess. You're only kind of just figuring out your identity, you're going for a lot of changes at that moment in time. Your dad suddenly passes, which is a terrible situation for anyone to go through, let alone a teenager as well. So what does that moment look like? I imagine it wasn't, okay, his passing, immediately going to antidepressants. What did that process look like from dad passing all the way to you being on medication? There was probably about six months, I would say, between from the time my father passed away to the time when I was put on these drugs. The timeline is quite fuzzy. The records, the medical records have long disappeared. And so we pieced together a few things, but my father died in July. And I remember that when I first started going to uh, doctors, there weren't any leaves on the trees. So we were in late fall, sometime uh -huh. between late fall, early spring. So not a lot of time, really. I mean, you know, a matter of months in between when we'd gone from a family of three to a family of two. And I was already in a, you know, highly unpleasant part of life for anyone, you know, uh, sophomore year of high school. It's not, it's not usually the time people look back on with a lot of fondness, right? So much change, you know, so I had first been taken to a child psychologist who I didn't, you know, she and I did not vibe, uh, at all. She broke my trust early on and I was also, you know, 15 and, you know, rather petulant and all those things that 15 year olds are, and I didn't want to be there. And after a few sessions, uh, the psychologist called my mother up and said, I can't tell you what's going on because I was protected under HIPAA in the U.S., so the patient privacy. She said, I'm not going to tell you what's going on, but what your daughter needs is a psychiatrist, not a psychologist. Uh, I'm diagnosing an anxiety and depressive disorder, and I'm recommending medication. So my mom just gets that call after, you know, a handful of sessions and what you know, she's just trying to do what I think every parent wants to do. They want to take care of their kids. So she followed the advice and a name was recommended to us. And I was taken to the child psychiatrist in that first appointment within, you know, first 10 minutes, he got a brief overview of the situation and said, let's see if I can help you with that and gave me a script. We tried a few different medications first. Uh, at the time, only Prozac and Zoloft were approved for use in children and teens. This was back in 2001. So I imagine the first two drugs we tried were Prozac and Zoloft. However, I had some obvious uh, physical reactions to at least two drugs before we landed on the combination I ended up on. So again, I don't know exactly what they were. That's just what we all assume it was given the situation. But you know, one really like put me to sleep in the middle of class, like head on the desk sleeping. <laughs> That's not that wasn't me. That wasn't normal for me. The other one made my heart race a lot. And so we just ended up putting me on a combination of Effexor XR and Wilbutrin XL. Those are the brand names in the US, which are Venlafaxine and Bupropion. Uh, elsewhere, those are the generic names. And neither one of those drugs is approved for use in children or teens, even today, 20 plus years later. So, but uh, that's what I was put on. And that just started a long process. And I, you know, I didn't question it. I was 15. I was just taking a pill because I was sick. Yeah, of course. Like and that's told. all you could have done at that stage. And now with the hindsight that you have, and obviously there'll be teens probably going through this. I don't imagine too many of them are listening today. I hope that they are. But if they 
aren't able to and they haven't got that information, I guess the call goes out to the parents to educate themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Big. Yeah. And what about the psychologist role in that? Do you think that they made the right call or do you think that more could have been done on their end before, like you said, you didn't click and it's much easier to refer someone out that you're not clicking with than to actually try and find a solution or even refer them to another psychologist. But what was her role or his role in that situation? And do you think that that could have been a better situation as well? Yeah. You know, in hindsight, there were a lot of factors uh, that were kind of unavoidable at the time. For example, you know, it was 2001. I grew up in Reno, Nevada, which at the time was probably, you know, a, not quite a town, but not quite a city and certainly not a metropolitan area with a lot of, you know, forward thinking folks. So I don't even know if there was another child psychologist in town. We got, right. we got a recommendation from someone and we got a name and it didn't dawn on anybody to try somebody else. I, I also don't know how necessary it was. You know, I am a big proponent of people facing their issues. Huge proponent of that. I think the only way to improve your life is to actually face whatever's coming up and, and people are masters at not doing that, right? That said, I don't think talk therapy and traditional psychotherapy is the right fit for everyone. And I don't necessarily think everyone needs it in order to face what they need to face. I think there are many avenues. I'm not sure it was ever the right fit for me. I also don't know at the time if anyone involved in this situation had the awareness to realize that. I mean, again, like it's 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 so it's default, right? It's yeah. yeah, and I was I was young, and you know what we were worried about was I was a very serious ballet dancer at the time, and you know, so I was already very concerned with being thin and having the right look for ballet and it was all kind of exacerbated with my father's death and so my mother was concerned about eating disorder tendencies and that's kind of why i ended up there it just morphed into something else we started off trying to address potentially one issue and then just went in a completely other direction so i don't know if going to somebody else would have made any meaningful difference i don't know if not I think not going was probably the best call, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. And it's easy to look back in hindsight, but I'm hoping that anyone who might find themselves in a similar situation to where you were, or at least where your mom was at the time, can start to think, okay, well, maybe this isn't the route. And realistically, that's all we can trust for is that we gain information. We have more open conversations about things like this. And like, if we go back two decades ago, like, mental health was barely even a subject that was even touched upon. I mentioned in the <laughs> yeah. podcast I spoke about earlier today, it was the punchline of a joke. It wasn't actually anything that was taken seriously whatsoever, let alone in children. So it, the information you're like scraping at the yeah. barrel, especially in the town slash city that you grew up in yeah. as well. So talk to us about how your life then looked once you were on this, like, this cocktail of drugs. And I should imagine that like most of us can kind of paint our own picture, but I'd love you to go through what changes started to happen to you once you obviously started taking the medication that you did. Yeah. So there wasn't any major change in the sense that it wasn't like life was dark and then it was good. You know, it wasn't, there was, there was no major before and after uh -huh. uh, at the time. And I was not in a position where I was, I was not in crisis. I was, and I, and I, 
I mean, I've been I've been doing this for long enough and speaking about this long enough that I, I think for people who are in active crisis, there's a very different conversation to be had. And, you know, we could have that conversation if you want, but let's put that aside for a second. Instead, we were looking more in the realm of what I think most pe- most parents, despite all the crap of the, you know, outlying stories you hear on the news, most parents who put their kids on psychiatric drugs are doing so out of preventative measures. They are worried that something bad will happen. They are overreactive to a a finite situation. I don't think they give it enough time. They don't give the kid time to work through whatever's happening. And they choose to go the route of medication either because the parent themselves feels incapable or is incapable of handling the situation. It makes them too uncomfortable. They don't want to deal with it. You know, maybe they won't admit that, but they don't want to... They, they just want something else to make it better, to make it easier for everyone. For sure. And so, and combine that with the fact that they are being told by professionals that these drugs are extremely low risk. And it's so commonplace that every other kid's on some psych drug that they don't see it as necessarily something that could potentially change the course of their kid's life for the negative. Right. Yeah. So I think that's where- red flags, right? Right. That's where the mindset is. And the issue with that is that aside from the fact that there are, you know, there's there's a percentage of uh, people who will have very obvious negative reactions to these drugs. I, I can't remember if it's 6% or 8%. I, I sometimes confuse the which is which, but there's some research that shows that there's a percentage of, of young people who, when you put them on an antidepressant, it will induce a manic state. And it's either 6% or 8%. I can't remember which one. Either way, it's bad. They're fairly close, <laughs> but it's it's higher than you'd want it to be, right? That's, that's in, a, in a class of 20 kids. Yeah. That, you know, you've got, how many is that, right? Like at least one, one to two. So that's not minor. But I mean, what parent is told that? What parent knows that, right? Instead, what will happen is they'll end up on that drug. Maybe that kid has a, you know, a manic episode is incited. And now the kid is bipolar. Now they get a bipolar diagnosis and they have another drug thrown on them. This is just a bad drug reaction, right? Okay, so there's that extreme aspect, right? So there, there some people can fall into that bucket. But I think the more com- the more common, obviously, because... Um, it doesn't happen with everyone, is that there's, at least in my case, there was a, there was a frame, uh, there's a framework shift. When, when you're a child and adults and people in power are telling you something about yourself, you take that on and integrate it into your identity and part of your personality and you start to view the whole world through the lens by which people are telling you you are, right? So in my case, I'm told that Two things. One, I'm told I have a medical disease called depression and anxiety, and that it's no different than if someone has diabetes and they take insulin, right? And I'm told that, you know, it's a chemical imbalance in my brain. It's not my fault, right? And so it's just something that, like, you just have to deal with, right? So what does that actually tell anyone, but especially a 15-year-old? It tells you you are not in control of your own body. It tells you you are not in control of your emotions. It tells you that you are not able to heal yourself. 
or address any of your issues. It tells you that you are not strong enough on your own to process deep and difficult feelings. And it tells you that this is the way you're going to be for the rest of your life. And on top of that, it gives you an excuse to blame a crappy situation or a crappy relationship or just like if you don't like your life, that's your excuse. You're depressed and it's medical. That and, you know, that's it. So when you impart that narrative on a 15-year-old or any young person or anyone who's just looking for an excuse, it changes the way you approach your life. It means you don't, like for me, in my case, all my creativity was killed. I think that that was the, I think that that was the psychiatric drugs. Like there were, there, I was on trajectories. I was really interested in a lot of things. I loved, I loved, you know, maps and being creative. And I wanted to be an engineer and build things. That all stopped. I, and I think that was because the drugs just like really kind of shut narrowed my mind okay but that doesn't you know i was still getting a's nobody really you know whatever i was just but i never really found my way and that continued and so it wasn't until i was you know 30 and i it dawned on me that i had been on these drugs for my entire adult life i hadn't had a single unmedicated moment since i was 15 and i was miserable i was suicidal i had hated my job i hated my life i had blamed it all on being depressed for all those years but when I actually became clear enough to look at it, I realized that I had just made so many choices through this lens of defeat and this depression that I was told I had that took me further and further away through who I from who I was. Mm -hmm. So it didn't start off as a problem. It became a problem as the choices compounded over time. And that, I think, is the risk. Yeah, and which is wild when you think about it because of ultimately the medication is supposed to improve the quality of your life, right? The person right. who goes and takes insulin, who's on diabetes, is supposed to have a better life quality because they can balance their blood mm -hmm. sugar. And the reality is not the case. And it's actually ended up making you worse. And I've heard you mention many times before, it's like, well, you didn't start off suicidal. You just had a few challenges with maybe body image, eating disorders on, on the edge of that perhaps and then you were dealing with a heavy trauma of your father passing but by no means were you suicidal on the edge of you know taking your own life so realistically when you actually look at the long mapped out version of that time frame it's like well actually you progressively got worse year on year and yeah. ultimately that wasn't down to just terrible decision making because it seems like you had a pretty good head on your shoulders at 15 years mm -hmm. old prior to all of this it was more the the way that you were looking at the world was completely different. The way I saw it when you mentioned it, it's like it's almost like you put on these pair of glasses, which just kind of mm -hmm. turned the world black and white and a little bit blurry, right? Yep. Yeah. And I, I, so tell me too what what is the biggest difference between dis discovering that you're di that you're diabetic and being told you have depression? What is the big key difference there? How do you get? How do you find out that you have diabetes? Well, you find out by going to your doctor and getting diagnosed, I guess. Through what? Through blood work and through, uh -huh. you know, blood sugar and understanding that, yeah, literally you have a genuine issue based on a lot of data that's being collected over a series yes. of time and then consistent tests to actually confirm that you've definitely got diabetes. Yep. And then, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get your point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and tell me, how do you measure a chemical imbalance in the brain? By someone's opinion, realistically. Yeah, you, you don't. There's no test for it. Yeah. So they are fundamentally not comparable. One has no. objective data 
that you can see in real time every time someone tests your blood. The other one is literally a random collection of symptoms created by a handful of uh, men throughout the early 20th century in order to put people into buckets. And yet we give people a very real chemical and biological thing to counter this imbalance or this issue that we have no evidence for at all. Now, it's not to say that biology does not, you know, impact the way we feel and our emotions and the way we, we, we view the world. I mean, if you eat, if you drink a cup of coffee, you're going to get wired. Maybe you get super agitated. It feels a lot like a lot like anxiety, right? It's not to say that biological stuff doesn't have an impact. It's just that I have an issue with building an entire industry and medicating our kids on a fraudulent claim. <laughs> yeah, it's wild when you speak it in such simple terms and it kind of just obliterates everything that it's built upon realistically. And talk to me about the tipping point. So you go through 15 years and it's wild to me because every single experience that you would have had in your late teens, your early 20s, you know, going getting your first career, you know, investing in these relationships and everything like that was through Personal this... Personal relationships. Exactly. And it was through this lens that, you know, you wouldn't have chosen for yourself and you probably wouldn't have chosen for anyone else either. So when you get to that point where you are 30 years old and you're like, enough is enough, what did that tipping point look like? And what were the next steps after that when you had that realization? Yeah, well, the, the tipping point was quite literally a tipping point. I mm. lived on the 30th floor of, uh, of an apartment in Manhattan and I had taken a habit of push the screen out of my window and would like pull my body out and look at the look at the patterns in the sidewalk below of the people because I was in Manhattan and I was, was like looking for breaks and I was kind of trying to calculate. I said, okay, how much time would it take to fall and not hit anyone? And I actually calculated that number. It was 5.58 seconds. So, and this all seemed completely normal to me. Nobody had a, like, it didn't, I didn't call the suicide hotline. Like this wasn't, I didn't feel like I was in crisis. This, this thought process had become so normal to me that the fact that I was calculating the amount of time it would take my body to fall to the 30th to the cement did not seem like something I should be concerned about or tell anyone about. And it really wasn't until, you know, I had been, I had been doing these calculations in order to just quantify things to make them make sense to me. I had also, <laughs> I'd also calculated that, you know, if I were to live an average life based on my habits. I, I took a whole bunch of uh, life expectancy tests and went through insurance companies and actuary tables. I really went into it and determined, to, I found an exact date of, of when I would be projected to die based on uh, all those things. And it's November 6, 2069. So I calculated the amount of days I had left to live. And then I calculated how long it had been since my father died. And it was 5,000 some odd days. And I also realized, yeah, so my father had been dead around 5,000 days. I had been alive around 10,000 days at that point. So there was this realization that as I was getting older, I was about to hit a point where I would have been alive for more days than my father, than I had had with my father. And at that same time, I realized, well, I was medicated right around the time he died. So that also means we're getting to a point where I will have been medicated for more than half my life and literally my entire adult life. And I'm calculating, you know, how long it takes 
a body to hit the ground. So basically, literally, this math doesn't work. (laughs) I just had this thought process that was like, hmm, um, maybe the antidepressants clearly aren't working very well. Uh, Perhaps, perhaps we need to address this. So that was kind of the moment that probably all happened over a week or a few days. And I didn't do anything right away. But then I had this, you know, completely bizarre opportunity come out of the blue to travel the world for a year. And it would it re- to take the opportunity required me to abandon my whole life that I had created. I owned a business in New York. I'd have to leave that, leave my apartment, completely blow it all up and start over effectively. And I realized that, okay, I need to take this opportunity because this is a parachute out of my situation and I need to do something drastic because I was feeling so trapped in my life in New York. But but realistically, it was going to be impossible to take all the drugs that I was on in a suitcase. At that point, I was on uh, my two psychiatric drugs and four other drugs that were for side effects of the psychiatric drugs that had been added on over the years. And so I literally had like, you know, multiple drugs every day and physically couldn't, would not be able to take them. Some of the countries I would be traveling to don't even allow you to take some of these drugs in. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I didn't trust some generic and some random pharmacy somewhere. So I said, okay, well, we got to get off this stuff to at least figure out what is the bare minimum. And then I said, I also am just kind of curious to know what my baseline would be. I figured it would be worse than I was than I already was, because if I was that depressed on antidepressants, you know, it was scary to think what I might be like without it. So I saw a psychiatrist and told her what the deal was. And, you know, she wasn't particularly warm or caring or any of the words you would hope that someone in that position of power would be. Uh, But she told me to just stop taking my Effexor XR cold turkey because I was on the lowest dose available on the market. And so from her perspective, I couldn't step down. And that 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 set me into withdrawal within about three four days, and then I stayed there for a year. And um, by the end of the year, I was off all the drugs, but I, I it was far worse than the depression had ever ever been. And in hindsight, probably avoidable, or at least there was a way to make it less horrific. And you decided to go on that trip as well, so there was no going back to the medications, right, I should imagine? Yeah, I had, uh, so I decided to go on the trip. I, I started to get off my medication in, or the drugs in uh, March. I was off all the antidepressants by June, July, summer, and I was off all the other drugs by about August. So it was a big period of being on all these drugs and then being on nothing. And I got on a plane... Uh, in late, very, like, the last day of August. And uh, once I got on that plane, it was a one-way ticket. I, there was no going back. I had to just deal with the situation I put myself in. In hindsight, I'm really glad that I was in such a, so removed from everything I knew. I think it actually was vitally important for me because I don't think I would have gotten through it had I just been able to walk two blocks down the street to my pharmacy and refilled the prescriptions. I think that temptation would have been far too easy for me. And so the fact that I couldn't do that forced me to stay in withdrawal, feel it, deal with it on with some counseling and, and actually get through it and heal. Yeah, and what were the key steps to healing? Of course, it was not going back on the drugs. I think that was probably the most important part that you 
didn't go back to. And I think it's really helpful that not only did you not have that option, you weren't in the same environment as well. Yeah. I'm sure that there was even more triggers that would have led you back to that path had you remained in that same environment of that life that you ultimately didn't really enjoy. You kind of just created in this kind of semi-hypnotized state that you had yeah. been for these past 15 years or so. Um, so I think that was helpful as well. So what were the key steps in terms of you actually getting to a place where you were fully healed? And when were you at the point where you're like, I'm free? You know, I'm, I'm good. Like I wake up and life looks as it should be. I don't have a clue how it should be because it's been 15 years, but I have some idea that this is probably what it should look like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so uh, let me just explain a little bit what withdrawal felt like for me first, so people have some context as to mm -hmm. what we had to deal with. So the, the best way I can describe it was like if I, it was like I had been walking around covered in a layer of plastic wrap or cellophane for 15 years where no matter the situation, I couldn't fight, quite feel the depth of all of it. Right. Happy, sad, you know, kind of joyful, grief. And the only, the only things that really got through strongly was anger and boredom. Um, but even anger was, was tempered a little bit. So when, when the drugs came away, it was like the cellophane got ripped off and it was like the intensity of the whole world was turned up by, you know, two, 300%. So like as basic as the way I saw color changed. So literally one day I was walking on the street and all of a sudden it was about dusk time. The headlights of the taxis and the cars coming at me went from being kind of fuzzy orbs to really sharp stars. Yeah. And like the saturation of the world just turned up and everything got really loud. And I felt things like my, I was suddenly very aware of the clothes on my skin and the way the raindrops felt. And it almost felt like the rain hurt when it hit my skin. And you know, my taste changed, what I liked to eat, the foods I liked, what I didn't, the type of music I took in changed. Some things that I'd listened to for years, I couldn't stand to listen to anymore. It's like it hurt somehow. Uh, I couldn't watch television because the input from both the both the sound and the light was too bright. It was too much. It was, I couldn't, my system could not handle it. So you had this full, you know, five senses situation happening and then there was this psychological aspect where i was had all of these violent intrusive intrusive thoughts that just came in so you know i would think about hurting myself hurting other people it was it was constant it was really visual it wasn't like a hallucination in the sense that you know there's a globe on the desk behind me right now it's not like i'm looking at the globe and it turns into a you know a little gnome it's not, and I think it's a gnome, not that kind of level of, of, sure. of, of thought, almost more like, you know, I, I explain it. I think everyone's felt this before. If you've ever driven, you know, you if you drive and you're on the highway and sometimes a thought comes in like, well, what if I just turned the car off the side of the road and ran into whatever at 65 miles an hour? It's that, it's that level of, well, that's a dark thought. Where did that come from? Right. <laughs> If in a, you know, you were just thinking about work or whatever before. So it's that kind of intrusive thought that com that was coming in constantly. And it was always really negative, always really violent. And so I'd be walking on the streets of New York and it was like, I'd see a person and I'd have a thought. I'd see a person and I'd have a thought. So it felt like this psychological onslaught and it had never happened to me before. You know, I thought about, you know, when I was driving, like randomly here and there, but it wasn't constantly at the forefront 
And it was so, it was so clear that one, one moment I had never experienced that. And then a few days after I got up the effects are, I was experiencing all the time. It was so clearly a before and after. So I was dealing with all of that. And then there was the emotional aspect of it where, you know, I mentioned that they, I had a lot of anger, but it kind of was a little tempered. <laughs> that, that lid just flew off. So my anger and rage absolutely went off the scales. I, I bent a metal ironing board in half, like a big one in half. I'm, I'm not a large person. This was like, <laughs> it's just, you know, this was, this was akin to, you know, people lifting a car off of a baby or something. Just this like flash of intense rage and uh, strength. <laughs> I don't know where it came from, but that just shows the level that of emotion that was happening. And it was, this went on for like, months and months and months and months and i was supposed to get on a plane and go live in the middle of some country where i didn't speak the language so there was just a whole bunch of stuff going on so when i got on the plane to malaysia i was still in this incredibly fragile state i was very worried but being removed from everything was so important because it all of the things that i had blamed my situation on you know, my business, my business partner, the fact that New York City was expensive, not being able to find a good date, you know, being 30 and like my life sucks. Well, I don't have any of the things, right? All those things we project disappeared. Mm. The only thing that was constant as I was moving around the world from country to country was me. <laughs> and it was very illuminating and humbling to uh, realize that your problem the real problem is going to follow you from Malaysia to Thailand to Cambodia to Croatia. And it was not any of the things that I had been blaming my situation on for the past, you know, 15 years. So that was a huge blessing because it really allowed me to hone in exactly on what the issues were. And I was working with a counselor who sort of blended Eastern and Western modalities together. So it wasn't traditional psychotherapy. We also, you know, talked a lot in the realm of, you know, kind of a more spiritual nature and connection to connection to the past and things would come into me more as metaphors or images as opposed to like very, you know, tell me about your mother kind of talk therapy. And so because of this kind of Eastern and Western blend, I was able to address what was going on inside of me, which was so shocking and so foreign to me that I couldn't be explained through a psychotherapy textbook. I needed a different way to address it. And for me, this method of uh, compassion, it's called Compassion Key, is what really helped me. I've seen it work well for other people too. It's not, maybe it's not for everyone, but it, it just is what allowed me to do it. And we were working on the phone remotely. So if I was in Thailand or Prague or wherever, I could, I could have a session. We could talk about whatever was coming up for me in that particular country. And... I didn't need to be physically in an office with someone scribbling something on a notepad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. So mm -hmm. we have removal from the environment. We have some type of counseling, a blend of Eastern and Western methods, which seems to serve you really well. What were some other yep. key components to your success as well that maybe people can start to look into if they are beginning their journey of coming off antidepressants? Yep. Yeah, I mean, so my my... This was 2016 and 2017 when this was happening. Mm -hmm. We have a lot more hard research and good science around antidepressant withdrawal and uh, safe deprescribing of psychiatric drugs than we did then. 
we still don't have nearly as much as I would like or we need and the evidence or in the and the information is not as well distributed as it needs to be, but it is still a wildly different world now than it was when I went through it. So I would hope that anyone who's getting off of psychiatric drugs doesn't have to go what I went through because they are working with a withdrawal informed practitioner or prescriber who understands how to manage this stuff better. So in order to answer your question, I think the biggest lesson that I had to learn, which took a very long time to truly integrate and understand, is that if you've spent as many years as I have on a, on a mind and life altering drug, when you get off of it, the instinct is to go back to normal. Whatever baseline you have spent the most time with and experienced where you where you feel your definition of good or content. The problem is, is that when you've been under the influence of these drugs for so long, that level of content or fine, that fineness is not going to be the same as when you've gotten off of these drugs and you're trying to discover who you are without them. So I see a lot of people who, who who talk to me who they're just they're just they just keep trying to go back but what they don't understand is that this is a one-way street you none of us can ever go back to who we were but you really can't when your entire understanding of yourself has come through the lens of of a substance that is altering that view so when i said i you know my my the food i like to eat changed and the music i like to listen to changed i mean that it was so fundamental to everything I knew about myself. So the healing process wasn't just getting to a point of not being a complete emotional wreck and, you know, having having a job where I could pay bills and feel competent in the world. It wasn't just about those things, though that was part of it. But it was literally about getting to know myself on a fundamental level with the most basic questions. That was like, what do I like to do? Because I didn't know anymore. The things that I had spent my time doing no longer felt like something I could either stand or or relevant to me. And, you know, I mentioned the creativity thing um, earlier. There was a direct, you know, when I stopped, started taking these drugs, my creativity stopped. When I got off of them, my creativity blossomed alive again. And that was so mm -hmm. weird to me. And so I wanted to learn to paint and... I didn't know what I was doing, but I, for the first time I went out and I bought some paintbrushes and some watercolors and I just started playing and just the instinct to play was huge. And that has, you know, that has evolved. I have a little paint studio off to the side <laughs> here and I had to say, okay, well, maybe this is something I want to integrate into my life. And I actually had to go explore it and learn it and not be afraid of it. I, I had to renegotiate the relationships I had with people because as it turned out, a lot of them weren't right for me. I had to, you know, once I finished traveling, I came back to New York. I looked around and I was like, nope, this is not where I want to be. I had to leave my city. I mean, so this was a very long multi-year process where I basically just had to sit with myself and say, what do I actually want? And it's slow and it's scary and there's a lot of trial and error and it probably going to mean that you are not on the same timeline or path as the people around you that has been a huge a huge thing for me it's not so much comparison as the thief of joy but it's like how do i relate to other people when they not only have no idea 
what I've experienced, but because of that experience, we're not at the same place in life. Like they were getting married and having kids. I was trying to survive. It creates a, you know, it creates a bifurcation. We're on different paths now. Like that's still something where I'm just kind of like, I look around and I just kind of say, I don't know. I don't feel like there's, I struggle, I struggle to find my people. It can be very lonely. I feel like an island. And these are, this is just collateral damage. I think it gets you closer to who you actually really are and to the life you really want. But getting off the drugs is just the first step. The second one is actually really, really figuring out how you want to live your life with the new knowledge you have about who you are. Yeah, and it's arguably like you lost 15 years of your life, essentially. Oh, yeah. So that's probably why you're looking around right now and thinking like, well, maybe I don't <laughs> want to get married just yet because of, you know, in my mind, I'm mentally a teenager still. I'm just kind of getting started, yeah. right? And yeah. it would be great for me to fit into these boxes, but maybe I felt like maybe my body physically lived this situation in these years, but mentally I wasn't there. And I can imagine there's so much resistance to be like following the normal path because you're like, well, I, I want my youth back. And like you said, yeah. it's just stepping into this identity that's completely different to what you were before. So, and it's crazy to me because even in a industry like mine, where I predominantly help people with their health and fitness, you know, we go through kind of large body transformations. And even with the world that I'm in, there's always this piece on things are going to look different when you finish your fat loss journey, right? You're going to feel like a very, very different person. You're not probably going to have the same friends. You're probably not going to have the same hobbies, or at least you might have, but it's not going to be nearly the same as before. And you can't go back to normal. We need to kind of build you out. Yet something as complex as someone's mental well-being and then being on medication is not taken in the same way. It's like the mind-blowing part to me, where it's that if it makes sense to a health and fitness coach, and I'm not underestimating what I do by any means whatsoever, it should be pretty well considered by a doctor or someone in that field of, <laughs> yeah. of medicine who spends a lot of time studying. And I know that GPs are often the ones that prescribe these things, but it's, it's bizarre that that knowledge isn't there as well. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And with anyone who's going through that phase right now of feeling a little bit lonely, feeling a little bit alone, is there a community of people like yourself who are people who have come off antidepressants, who are trying to step into this new life, new identity, who are just trying to find a place of their own? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky mm. um, because there's not really something well established in the way that, for example, there's, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, where that's a well global known. brand yeah. and well known. It It is very effective for a lot of people. It's not effective for everyone. Some people don't like it. That's not the point. The point is, is that there's there's an option yeah. and there's a structure and it's in person and it's contained. I think those 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 things are very important because what we have in the withdrawal community is is mostly just online forums. So people can find online forums where there there are some that have incredible information as far as like if if you're working with a doctor who's actually open to you t getting off your your psychiatric drugs and they're admirable enough to admit they don't know anything about it, which is can be rare, then there are places on the internet where there's like huge wealths of information, a practical information of how to properly taper. Uh, we can talk about that. We probably should. And you can take it to your doctor or prescriber and say, like, let's look at this together. Let's look at this information and create a plan. The problem is, is that in those same places, there's usually open forums where people can just go and share the worst moments of their life as much as they want and basically 
trauma vomit all over anyone who would read them. And this is, you know, not a unique uh, aspect of the internet <laughs> by any means, but I find that because psychiatric drug withdrawal is such a is such a unique experience of hell, or at least it can be. People come there when they're at their lowest point already, and then they they're surrounded by hundreds or thousands of people stories that are also the worst moments and the most terrifying moments they've ever experienced. And they get really stuck in there and it makes them way worse. And they don't find comfort in it. They find fear in it. That's a real unfortunate kind of paradox of yeah. the withdrawal immunity. And the biggest reason is because there's no predictability in withdrawal. We don't know who's going to have a serious strong reaction and who isn't. The, the research says about 50% of people who come off of a psychiatric drug or an antidepressant will have a withdrawal reaction. Of those 50%, uh, half of those are severe. Which is still huge. Okay. Yeah, it's one in two people. So it's, it's, right. And that means about 50% of people are just like, eh, I just kind of stopped taking my Prozac. It wasn't a problem. Uh, right? Okay. So it's, you and you don't know what camp you're going to fall into. We There's no test for it. We really have no idea why some people react and some people don't. And furthermore, if you are someone who does have a strong withdrawal reaction, we don't know why it lasts years in some people and weeks in others. And that's very different from other drugs. Like, it's different than alcohol withdrawal. It's different than opioid withdrawal. It's different than maintaining sobriety, right? Maintaining sobriety from... Alcohol comes with its own challenges, I imagine. It's not, um, I'm lucky not to struggle with that. But you're not dealing with a psychological onslaught or, you know, you're not de dealing with delirium tremens indefinitely as you're trying to stay sober, right? So it's different. And that's what's really tricky about withdrawal is it's just, it's such a question mark. And so how do you manage that pain as a group as a researcher as a doctor i i don't know and, and no one knows so that's you know i do think that if we had something more organized like an aa it would be helpful but it yeah. would it would need to be in person it would need to be contained like we all have an hour to share our story and then we go home and we get some distance right we don't then live on the forums um it's tricky, man. I yeah. it's tricky. I think that's honestly the only solution realistically is to, like you said, start something that's relatively structured, relatively empowering as well, and then have the examples that people can then follow, right? Because yeah. of right now you don't have that many examples of people who have gone through that process, come out the other side, are kind of advocates for that world as well. And also at the same time as well, like everyone, if they know you have an alcohol problem, they're going to celebrate like, hey, you got you are being sober and, you know, let's celebrate your sobriety. Let's give you your coin. But if someone's like, ah, I spent three months off antidepressants, I'd be like, you sure that's a good idea, right? Because most people assume yes. it's, it's the, the right thing to do to stay on them, not to get off them. And the right. kind of, it's more celebrated if you reach out for help and you get the medication versus yep. the opposite in alcohol because people are like, ah, okay, deep down, we kind of know that alcohol is a problem. So we celebrate you coming off it, right? And especially because if people have a withdrawal reaction, they become more unbearable to the people around them, mm. right? Like, again, everyone's just... The reason why we have this 
or one of the reasons why we have this opinion or cultural response to mental health issues is because it makes other people uncomfortable. Yes, that's true. Yeah. That's it. Right? Like if you're if you're experiencing depression or anxiety and it makes you uncomfortable, it's one thing to kind of, you know, if people are fully informed, which they're not, but like let's say in a world they are. <laughs> and and you decide that it's best for you that you want to take, you know, a, a chemical drug for a period of time in order to alleviate that situation, I have no problem with an adult making that choice for themselves. I really struggle when we're forcing it on other people through involuntary holds. I also have a huge problem when we give it to children who literally have no agency. But at the end of the day, when we're when we're doing something and we're responding to mental health issues, it's because we are uncomfortable. We don't like to see it. And it's easy to just blame it on something that was out of their control and you know, we want we want to push it away. So you know, if we're tired of listening to our friend Kvetch about how bad their life is, well, then maybe an antidepressant will make them better so we don't have to hear about it. And when you come off of a psychiatric drug and what happens, what can happen in withdrawal is more problems, more emotional, you know, psycho-emotional issues that can stress the other people. Well, it's just everyone's initial instinct is make this stop. When in reality, what we need to do is listen to it, learn from it, lean into the struggle. I mean, it's if, if we're going to compare it to something physical, we have to work the broken leg. We have to put it in a splint, and then we have to take the splint off, and we have to build up the strength, and we have to work through the scar tissue. And it's going to hurt a lot in order to get full strength back. It's the same thing here. Recognize that it gets messy before it actually becomes better again right yeah. and i think a big thing that you mentioned i think on another interview that i listened is that when people come off there's probably going to be this temptation and maybe pressure from other people to go back on because of all these episodes that they're experiencing and i think that something that a relative said to you who had some experience in this world said that you know people who are psychotic don't actually realize that they are right so yeah. i think that that's a good insight for people to take away as well it's like understanding that it's not going to be hopefully it will be hopefully you fall into the 50 percent cap that are actually okay but i have a high uh, like probability and prediction that most people who go on to these things maybe they don't have their life fully together or maybe there's some things going on that even if they come off and they don't, the reason yeah and they don't come off and they don't experience the withdrawal symptoms they're still going to be quite a mess to sort out so i think it's just about recognizing yeah. okay it's not going to be easy initially but there is a long-term solution for that. And whilst we've got a little bit of time left, I do want to ask you, what are some of the solutions and what are some of the ways in which we can make sure that we don't go down this route? I think the big thing I've been asking you is like, what was your route back to the place you wanted to be? But I think ultimately it's like, okay, well, how can we cut it from the root versus actually having to deal with all the symptoms that came from that? Yeah. Yeah. So a uh, solution is unfortunately a stronger word than I would use. I would say strategy. Strategies. <laughs> we'll go with strategies for now. Start there. Yes, um, there yeah, there's uh there's no there's no solution to this issue that will apply to everyone. And that's one of the tricky parts. But where we're at with the research right now is there is there is a strategy that has emerged called hyperbolic tapering. This term was coined by a researcher based out of the UK named named Mark Horowitz, who's he himself is as far as I know, he's one of the only um he was he was a training psychiatrist. And he wanted his, he was going to go be a psychiatrist and prescribe drugs. And he himself had been on antidepressants and he decided to get off of them and he entered into terrible withdrawal. And so he said, 
well, screw this. We're going to go research <laughs> instead. So he is one of the only people I have encountered who both has the clinical framework and the research background and has also experienced withdrawal himself. So I think he is just so valuable in, in, in the industry. Almost everyone else, it's like, well, you're like me, you've experienced withdrawal and you've kind of become a de facto expert slash advocate on the topic because you had to, but you haven't been through the med school program or you're someone who's been through the medical school program. You're, you know, you're a researcher, doctor, psychiatrist, whatever it is, you're interested in it. You see this as a problem, but you haven't had personal experience with it. So you're a little limited and things become pretty clinical. So anyway, Mark's work is fantastic. And he advocates for a hyperbolic tapering method. And the reason why is because, you know, a lot of his research and there are multiple people who have worked on this now, it shows that the way we have historically tapered would be linear. So that means we go from 100 milligrams to 75 to 50 to 25, and then you're done, right? So you subtract it by a little bit percent yeah. each time. That's common. But what we know through through observation and in some in some studies is that people have more difficulty coming off of their drugs when they are actually on less less drugs than they do when they're on higher so for example if you if there's a linear taper someone may not have any problem going from 100 to 75 maybe even 75 to 50 maybe even 50 to 25 they don't really have any issues and they think they're going to be fine but then they go from 25 to zero and all hell breaks loose, right? And we see that over and over again with all psychiatric drugs. So the research that's being done is trying to explain why. And one of one of the leading theories is is something to do with something called serotonin occupancy, cert occupancy, which basically when all the all the little serotonin molecules or whatever molecule we're dealing with is is in the brain, it's in the receptors, and it doesn't leave the receptors in a linear way. It doesn't come out consistently. So if you stop taking the drug, it doesn't just like lower incrementally over time. It actually stays, the receptors stay bound up, then there's no drug coming into the system. And the, the, the brain has also stopped producing naturally all of these chemicals because it's been so yep. used to having the drug come Dormant, in. Dormant, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's that level of Im imbalance that we think is causing a lot of these symptoms. So they did PET scans and they can see how the, or the serotonin occupancy, they, they, they did PET scans and they could see it reduce over time. And the curve that was found was, was, was round. A it's called a hyperbolic curve. So if you imagine it as opposed to like, as opposed to a line, it's like one quarter of a circle. Right. So the theory is, okay, what if we match up our tapering reduction schedule to match the curved line instead of the linear line. In theory, if we're reducing the drug at the same rate as we are, as the serotonin occupancy is going down, then we should have fewer symptoms. And so the way this works in practice is the, the guidelines typically say start at a 10% reduction every two to four weeks, depending on how the patient is handling it. So for example, instead of going from 100 milligrams to 75 milligrams, we have 100 milligrams of our drug, 10% of that we subtract. So 10% of 100 is 10 milligrams. So for a while, the patient's going to take 90 milligrams of their drug. Then when we're ready to make our next cut, we take 10% of 90. 
So that's 90 minus 9 this time. Now we're at 81. Next time we cut by 8.1 grams, which is 10% of 81. And then we're into, you know, 70 point math that gets a little screwy in my head <laughs> and so on and so forth. And so what happens is the actual amount you cut the drug down by goes down every single cut. So once you get to the part where it can be difficult for people, which can be, you know, going from 10 grams to zero or five grams, sorry, 10 milligrams to zero or five milligrams to zero, the cuts get smaller and smaller. Sometimes the space between the cuts goes down. It's di this, but it becomes different for everyone. Some people can go pretty fast and they're kind of okay, or maybe they're a little agitated. Some people get stuck. They get stuck at some weird little thing. Like they get stuck at 1.34 milligrams and they're titrating out the drug through an eyedropper. Like it's bizarre, right? So again, we don't really know why. Um, and I've also seen this not work for people. Some people are just like, I just need to get off of it. And then they're in a, then they're in a pickle. It, it's just, it's God, it's so tricky. And then on top of it, okay. <laughs> so let's say we want to hyperbolic taper. Well, how do we do that, right? In the US, effects are, you can get in 37.5, 75, and 150 milligram doses. I believe that's correct. So how am I supposed to get 18.3 milligrams on my taper schedule, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you have a compound pharmacy near you, in your in your town or city, they are they exist to make custom doses of drugs. You you get your prescriber on board, you explain what you want to do, you help educate them, they educate you, hopefully you find someone who will work with you as a team. You create a schedule and then you fill your drug through the compound pharmacy who can make you your 10 milligrams or 7 milligrams or whatever it is. If you don't have that, then people, what will happen is they'll actually be at home using this information from some of these websites that has really um, you know, strong information, quite frankly, and they're shaving off, you know, powders from a tablet or they're opening up capsules and counting the beads inside and that's the and you know they're using microgram scales like drug scales and razor blades it's the only way that they can actually taper down off the drug and you know you might ask like is it even worth it and you know maybe it's not maybe for some people it's not worth it like they'd just rather keep doing what they're doing but for a lot of people they start to realize that they're waking up you know their colors come back their curiosity comes back their beauty in the world comes back their ability to really feel a connection in relationships starts to come back. And that is so worth the tediousness of tapering and potentially withdrawal that that's what motivates them to keep going. That's how it was for me. I saw, I started to see so much beauty and color and hope and it was so foreign to me and I just, I loved it and I needed it. And I was so angry and so frustrated, but I would think about how I was able to smell a cup of coffee and really realize how wonderful that smell was. Like I would just have these moments and I held on to them and thank God I did because I, I love being alive now. I never would have been able to say that. So for me, it was all worth it. It was the greatest gift I've ever been through and the worst thing I've ever been through. But I, I, I'm glad I did it. So, and yeah, it's inspirational, and I hope that anyone who's going through any stage of that situation right now is listening and maybe just applying that to their life as well. Maybe just asking themselves, well, how does my life look? And knowing that that can be on the other side of something that's going to be hard initially, mm -hmm. 
But at the same time, you're already living in a hard situation. It's just so subdued yeah. and so like sedated to a degree that you're not even really recognizing it. So as you mentioned at the very, very start of our interview, it's like, you know, the only way to solution is just facing your problems head on. And I think that that's something that I've taken away from today. And I hope that a lot of people do as well. But Brooke, it's been a fascinating and insightful conversation. So thank you so much for your time. And I have a couple of final questions. And the first, which I probably got a good idea of throughout the course of this conversation is (laughs) what impact do you want to have on the world with the work that you do? You know, I just... At this point, I, I I want to just show people that whatever you've been told about yourself, whatever diagnosis you've received, is not doesn't have to be permanent and it doesn't have to dictate your entire life. And that if you take control and really start looking at this and examining it, you can create you can you can live in a whole new existence that feels so far away from the person you think you are. So I I spend a lot of time talking about this topic, but I don't spend all my time talking about it on purpose because I want to be out there living a life that I enjoy. And like you said, I've, I feel like I've been off antidepressants for seven years now. I only feel like I've really been alive for seven years. <laughs> and so I want to show that that there's joy and hope. And I hope that I can do that. I love it. I think you've done that today. And where's the best place for people to find you and find the book if they want to read it, if you piqued their curiosity today? Yes. So you can find me all over the internet at Brooke Seam, B-R-O-O-K-E-S-I-E-M. My website is brookseam.com. The book is available wherever books are sold. You can get it uh, all over you know, bookstores and, and Amazon in the US. It's also on audiobook wherever you get your audiobooks i know it can be ordered and in the uk and europe and australia and all of that too so i would just encourage you to find your favorite bookseller and ask them for it and uh yeah or listen to it on audiobook amazing that will all be in the show notes below but brooke thank you so much for your time today i really really appreciate it thank you so much elliot and that was the simply fit podcast i hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode i feel inspired to improve your health and well-being be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.